down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way Dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd Hey folks, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 527. It is Friday. It is Friday. It is Friday. It is Friday. I know for a lot of people it's a big deal. For me it's always like, ah, the week is over, you know. My wife and kid are going to be around all day tomorrow. I can't get any work done. But I know for a lot of you guys, man, it's like, ah, it's Friday. Let's get out of here. Well, Friday's cool on the Survival Podcast because the show's all about you. We have your calls, your questions, your comments. You call those in to 866-65-THINK. Of course, the show is pre-recorded, so you make that call anytime you want to. Uh, right now I'm answering questions that came in about two weeks ago, so that's about the backlog now. But uh, make the call anyway. Again, 866-65-THINK. Uh, tell me what you want to hear, what you want to know. Make a call. Be quick, concise, to the point. You get about two minutes to do that, and then the system cuts you off, and you don't get to talk anymore. So uh, just like talk radio, they say, if you uh, want to be on the air, uh, have a point, get to it, and don't suck. I don't have very many people call in that ever suck, uh, but you get the point. you got two minutes to get it done, so uh, that's the best thing to have in your head when you call in. So know what you want to say, because uh, there's no back and forth. It's just a recording. With that, though, before we get into today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors and do our housekeeping. Uh, sponsor of the day, number one, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said shelf, not self. Shelf like a shelf that you place things on. I just mentioned yesterday that I had a video that came out uh, of their Consolidator uh, pantry system uh, for food rotation and storage. They've done something cool. I posted to the blog yesterday. You'll want to check today. Uh, of a post on my blog with the video that I did of the Consolidator. They have a discount code out for the month of August right now, 10% off all food rotation systems and 20% off the Consolidator Pantry. These codes are posted publicly on the blog and in the video notes. They are for everybody, not just MSB members. Uh, so check that out. If you've been putting off buying something from... Uh, Shelf Reliance, this might be a good time to do that. Great company, great stuff, and check that video out I did on them. Next up today, silverandgoldshop.com. Mary Beth Maidmont, wonderful selection of silver and gold items. I just realized something. I haven't ordered from them for a while. Time for me to get some more silver coins, especially with the holidays coming up. Make sure I have some extra ones around to hand out to nieces and nephews and things like that instead of plastic toy crap, and to make sure I'm still building my own reserves of silver and gold. Silver's a little bit higher right now. I think we have a long way up to go with it. Uh, I'm not as aggressive on a silver buy as I was, let's say, four months ago, but I'm still buying silver every month. I think you should be doing the same thing. I'm going to tell you this honestly, though, even though it's right in the middle of my sponsor segment. Be careful with gold right now. I'm not saying don't buy any. I'm just saying be careful. Gold is on a huge boom. And remember, before every bust, there is always a boom. That's why I think silver is a safer play right now. It hasn't had the boom that gold has had. There's a huge delta between silver and gold right now. 
So look hard at silver, especially with small amounts of investment, $50 to $100 a month right now. You're not going to be able to buy much gold with that. I think silver is a great store of value. Check Mary Beth's site out. Good place for it. Um, next up, I want to remind you guys, check out our gear shop. We have some new shirts in the gear shop. They don't have survival podcasts except they have the domain on the back of them. Uh, they're snark shirts. Some people are going to be offended by them. I'm sorry if you're offended. They're not meant to attack anybody personally. For instance, one says something to the effect of, you know, what does it say exactly? What did I come up with? Oh, God put people like you here to test my faith. I just might fail the test. When we put that out on Facebook, some people thought that was against religion. It has nothing to do with religion, folks. That's about people. It's about people. It can be any person you want it to be, from someone down at the DMV to, uh, you know, honestly, I had, with a lot of these shirts in mind, the people that come into my wife's medical office that are here on the taxpayer dime, illegally, on Medicaid, uh, and that, you know, another one that came out of that was... Um, Excuse me, I have to get back to work. Somebody has to pay for people like you. Some people got offended by that one. These shirts are meant to be whatever you want them to be. Check them out. They're in the snark section of the gear shop. And I think one that we'll all enjoy and no one should be offended by, except maybe our congressman, is simply have you fired a congressman lately? And then there's one there about a promise from government. I won't say that on the air. I'll leave you to find it. You'll like it. Um, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of our show You know, make sure you check out the M. Oh, MSB. I'm not going to say a lot about it. I'm going to tell you this though. There is a special on the MSB. I'm not going to tell you what it is. If you want to know what it is, go to our Facebook page. And it expires today. It doesn't expire tomorrow. It's not going to be extended until tomorrow. It's on our Facebook page. With that, let's go ahead and take your first question. We got a bunch of great questions. I think I got ten people lined up. Some really good ones. Revisiting some topics. We already had some people disagreeing with me. Good stuff. Um, let's go ahead and take that first one. Hi, Jack. Just finished listening to your show on hydroponics. And I had an idea, and I don't know if it would work, so I wanted to bounce it off of you. I was thinking about these uh, swimming pools, some of which go on clearance at the end of season. They're small. Um, the water itself tends to hold them up. Could One of these little swimming pools, they're kind of like a step between a kiddie pool and, you know, a above-ground pool, be used um, as a hydroponics um pond in a sense and my other thought was maybe then to um help with the warmth if you know i either used raised beds around it or uh put like some compost if that might keep it warm um just some thoughts um would love to hear your idea on whether this could work or if this would be a very bad way to start off thanks jack Well, inherently, there's nothing wrong with the idea. I've seen people actually use swimming pools to do this before. What I've actually seen people do is instead of getting like them on clearance from a store, go out to like uh, Craigslist and local newspapers and find the small, true above-ground pools, something in the akin to maybe a 12-foot round. And uh, then what they've actually done with them is, I don't know, most people I don't think realize this, there's really no difference between a 24-foot round pool and an 18-foot round pool, um, other than there's more panels in the larger pool. So what you do is you take you know, your 18-foot round pool and then you make multiple little pools. And I've seen people do that with aquaponics. I think Johnny Max actually had a listener suggest that. He was going to do it. I don't know if the Queen let him or not. That's Johnny Max and the Queen over at sshomestead.com, another great podcast to check out. I don't know if they did it or not. 
Um, you could do that. You could do the what you're talking about with these small, like, they're kind of like a big kid's pool, you know, is what they are. I know what you're talking about. They're put together with, like, uh, piping and all. Here's the issue you're going to have. Um, I can't say anything about the quality one way or the other. I don't know how long they last. So, I mean, that's just a, you know, it kind of toss up there. If you, you know, built kind of a wood frame around them to protect them from the, from the UV light, they'd probably last longer. Um, they're designed for people to get in, so they should be fine with fish. But how many gallons are they? Even a relatively small one, you may be looking at something with, you know, 2,000 gallons. And there's nothing wrong with that except what? With an aquaponics system, we have to have at least a one-to-one -one ratio of gallons of our water to gallons uh, of our media. So if we have a 2,000-gallon kiddie pool, we need about 2,000 pounds worth or 2,000 gallons worth of grow bed to counteract that. So if we looked at, like, let's say we're going to do our grow beds in um, the 100-gallon uh, stock tank, oval stainless steel stock tank things, we would need 20 of those. Right, if we were going to use the 300-gallon round stock tanks as our grow beds, what would we need of those? Three times three is nine, so double that. Six plus one more, seven. I mean, it's a lot of grow bed with 2,000. If it's a thousand gallons, you know, then hey, ten of those stock tank things would make a pretty interesting system. If there's and those things, unlike an above-ground pool, I think it'd be more difficult to scale them down and like make it into two. But there's always a way, right? So let's say that we have um, our little pool holds 2,000 gallons, but we only want 1,000 gallons. Well, if we only fill it up halfway, <laughs> then we have 1,000 gallons of water. So that's the one thing to watch out for is just how much water we're talking about here. Um, the other thing is you're probably with something that large – because even the small ones are quite large, you're going to want to build some type of a some type of a way to uh, to, to segment your fish. Because instead of having multiple tanks, so you have like you know first order, second order, third order growth fish, with your third order gro growth fish being some of them are so large you're pulling them out and throwing them on the grill this week, and as that gets depleted, you're moving your seconds and your thirds up, and then you're bringing in new fry into your, your you know kind of your nursery tank. You're not going to have that unless you create some kind of a way to to, to keep your fish separated from each other. Obviously, you don't want to use netting because if you use any kind of a netting, you know your little fish can get tangled up in it, and your big fish even could get tangled up in it. So you're going to need to build some kind of a way to sequester them off. Um, drilled plexiglass would probably work perfectly, but it would be kind of expensive uh, to, to, to do, uh, at a height high enough and a width high enough to segment things off like that. But I'm sure there's different things you could do that with a non-toxic version of hardware cloth. You could make frames or something. Uh, but those are your issues. Those are your issues. No way to segment your fish in a relatively large water area, which if you know, if you're doing trout, you know, and you're doing, you're in a cool climate, you can do them year round and, You know, they have a slow growth rate once they get large, and you may be bringing one or two small tanks for your nursery tanks. Not that big a deal. You're doing a fast-growing species in the south like tilapia, especially if you're doing tilapia where you kind of have to wrap up your operation by about November because of temperatures getting too cold for them. Then you really need your kind of your staggering uh, capability. Uh, another thing to think about that you asked about compost. If you... Uh, put this inside some sort of a greenhouse and you put compost in there, absolutely you're going to get heat retention. 
I have been thinking about this as an idea for keeping your water warm in the winter. You get a great big compost pile of active compost, and you keep working it, and you keep adding, you keep rotating through, and you put that in a bin, and you put that adjacent to where you know your 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 tank is. And in addition to the water circulation that you're doing for your hydroponic system, you run a pipe through your composting system. Maybe you run it through kind of like a radiator where it's just a pipe that goes back and forth, back and forth. So you get a lot of surface area inside there. So the water's coming out of your tank, running through your compost pit and coming back out. So it's absorbing water from your compost on a continuous basis. The thing is, I think you'd have to do that a relatively low flow small volume of water so that the cooling action of the water didn't overpower the heating action of the compost. But I think that could be done fairly easily, and just a little bit of thermal gain would be a lot with water compared to air. So good idea, good thoughts, but definitely what I've seen people do with aquaponics and greenhouse operations is build a very large greenhouse and maybe all along the sides Uh, have active compost throughout the winter, and they keep the temperature in there much, much warmer that way. Great question, great thought. Let's take another one. Good morning, Jack. Tom out of Naples, Florida. Uh, things that have been bothering me have been, with inflation facing us in the coming years, are we better off spending all our money now or hoping that the government can turn it around? You know, I've worked my whole life saving for a future. I'm getting to the point of being a retired guy. I got money in the bank. I've been putting things away for survival needs as insurance. But what are your thoughts on spending it now while prices are still reasonable or going ahead and saving more money and putting it in the mattress? Thank you. It's one of those questions that can be uh, kind of tough. Here's the deal, uh, folks. When you hear it, I mean, this is so close to yesterday's show, I don't want to rehash it at all. I want to try to stay very technical with this one. Um, but there's all kinds of advice out there like that. And if you listen to yesterday's show, you'll see how angry it gets me. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with the question, but there's advice that basically says, go spend your money now. My first question is on what, though? Um, let, let's talk about the situation this gentleman's in. He's in a different situation than a lot of Americans, and the same situation as a lot of other Americans, and you're getting close to retirement age. The, and this is where inflation really punishes people with an unfair tax, more than anything else, is that retirement. See, inflation, while you're working, is negligible on its effect on you, as long as we're in a growing economy. We're not in one right now, but you know we go into them often enough that generally wages tend to increase alongside of inflation to a degree. Not enough to overtake it, but generally to keep the delta somewhat diminished. And then people can always have the option of, I'm going to improve my life, I'm going to get a better job, I'm going to work harder, I'm going to work more. They can always find ways, if they really, really want to, to push earnings up. I know some people are like, I can't push my earnings up. You can if you re if, if your life depended on it right now. If I told you, if you don't earn an extra $1,000 in the next two months... Ivan the Terrible is going to be, come back from the grave, come to your house, and shoot you dead in the head. You would have an extra $1,000 at the end of 60 days. So if you want to, you can. As we go into retirement, we lose that ability, and inflation is far more painful to our elderly retired than it is to our working middle class. 
And I think sometimes the people that are still working, we lose touch with that. Because we know Social Security is an inherently unfair program, and we see the elderly as the reason Social Security exists. It's not why it exists. It's their government is why it exists. And the reason it doesn't work is, in large part, due to inflation. So, just understanding the situation and making sure that, that you understand the situation I know you're in when you're asking the question. Um, but here's my advice. You never want to spend all your money. And let me put it to you very, very simply. If a pound of green beans costs a dollar today, and a pound of green beans in five years costs two dollars, when is it more important that you have money? Today, when they're a dollar, or tomorrow when you still need to eat and they're two? Well, tomorrow when you see... see you, all inflation does is make having money more important. And again, we have to look at recent cases of runaway inflation and and stop looking back to Weimar Germany like everybody that wants you to buy gold wants you to do. We have to look at, you know, were people throwing away money in Russia during hyperinflation or Argentina? And the answer was no. There's a great blog, I can't remember the name of it right now. Somebody'll post it in the show notes, I'm sure, of a guy that went through this in Argentina. And what he said is flat out, hey, money became more important than ever during this period of time. So I don't want you to just spend all your money. I don't want you to have that attitude. Now, answering your question, I do think it is a time, though, to look at are there certain investments that can be made that will offset your long-term expenses as you go through your retirement years. So things like if you can put in a damn solid uh, alternative energy system that's going to cut your electric bill down by 50% or more, And you have, let's say that's going to cost you $25,000 to put that in. And that's doing a little work yourself, shopping around, getting competitive bids, etc. And you're sitting on a half a million dollars saved up. Do it. I don't even have to think about that. Quarter of a million dollars saved up, that's 10%. And you're going to take care of your electricity needs for 20 years or more with a new system? Do it. If you have $100,000, that's a quarter of your wealth. I don't know. You got to make that decision. If all you have is twenty-five thousand, you need to hang on to that and make it last as long as you possibly can. It's all about how much money you've saved up. I think I recognize your voice. I think you've called in before, and I think you have quite a bit stashed away in precious metals. If I remember the cadence of your voice, if I'm confusing you with somebody, I'm sorry. But if you are the same person that called in about precious metals, I think you're sitting on a fairly good stockpile of wealth. And if you are, don't sweat it so hard. You know, if you have that gold and silver reserve and you have cash, you've covered both sides. Remember, please remember everybody. There are two swords of destruction in a fiat economy. One is inflation and the other is deflation. In a deflationary economy, cash is king. In an inflation economy, commodities are king. That's why I say everything you do, whether you're retiring now or retiring in 30 years, should be geared upon this philosophy. Build everything you need for daily life as much as you can solidified in the center so that you need as little cash and as little commodity as possible. And then build up around yourself like two fortress pillars equally into a liquid, cash-rich investment field and a very solid commodity-based long-term investment field. And for most people, the easiest way to do the commodities at the income levels that most of us have is going to be silver and gold. It's very hard to really have a long play, you know, in soybeans when you're not a multimillionaire. 
It really is. You can buy some contracts and do some short-term options trading and all. That's not investing. That's trading. And if you're good at that, you can make a lot of money at it, but it's an ongoing thing. It's not a buy, hold, and cash in as you need it philosophy. So that's what I'm going to advise you to do, and it all depends on how much you have in reserve. But never, ever anybody, please never any, never listen to anybody that says, just spend it all now before it becomes worthless. We're not in Weimar, Germany. Things are different than they were then. Your money can be devalued. It gets devalued differently in a different way. And there's all types of scenarios where they can rebase the currency or something like that, and really it was a great idea to be holding some gold and silver. But there's also all kinds of scenarios where our economy slides into 10 years of sideways movement. It doesn't grow, it doesn't shrink, it just stays like it is, and it just stagnates like Japan. And in that economy, you want as much cash as you can get, brother. So play both sides of the fence with this. Let's go ahead take another call. Before we do the next call, though, I kind of have to introduce it, because if you didn't hear the show where this guy's talking about, it's not going to make any sense. Somebody uh, made a call in to one of the shows and said basically they have an employer 401k with a 100% match, and it was up to 5% or 10%. I think it was up to 10% of their salary. And they wanted to know, should they max it out? Or should they not max it out? Because even though it's 100%, it's locked into a 401k. My basic advice was, if the if you have plenty of money, and this is like just extra money, throw it in there. But if you don't have a good savings outside of your 401k, if you don't have an emergency fund built up, if you you know if you don't have all, if you're still in debt then maybe do half of it because it is a good return. I also said at the time I wasn't aware of whether or not if you had a Roth 401k, what happened. And I, I got an answer to that that I'll give you as I respond to this gentleman's uh, objection to my advice. I think he actually makes a lot of sense. I still have some misgivings about going with 100%. I'll let you hear from him and I'll come back and give you my take. And I will tell you he's pulled me a little bit toward his side of the fence. Really good thought. Let's hear what he has to say. Hey, Jack, I'm going to have to disagree with you, I think, on your advice uh, regarding the 401k IRA issue um, with the 100% match from his company. Now, granted, he needs to have enough surplus funds so that he can put away savings and have, like, a liquid emergency fund. But if he's got that already, um, if he puts the 100% matched financial investment in, even if he pulls that out early, takes all the penalties, even if he gets the 10%, you know, early withdrawal penalty, another 10% withholding, even if it took 30 40%, he still gained a net of over 50% um, value on his investment. So if he put in 10000 and his employer puts in another 10000 and he pulls that out and gets penalties, even if they keep three or four thousand dollars in penalties he's still gained an extra five thousand plus um investment so if as long as he's got that safety net and has enough surplus to keep that safety net you know growing as it gets depleted from car breaking down whatever then that investment in that case with a hundred percent match is pretty much a gain even if he has to take an emergency withdrawal and pull all that money out of the IRA or 401k. Just a thought there. I think that kind of makes sense, but only if he's got that uh, reserve surplus. Thanks. Enjoy the show. 
And again, I think you've got a, a case, and I'm not going to completely disagree with you, but I am going to bring up some other things to think about. First, I'm going to make your own case stronger in your objection. Um, I have since learned the answer to the Roth 401k. If you have the option for a Roth 401k and the employer doesn't match, here's what happens. The money you contribute in the Roth goes into basically one 401k, and the employer's match goes into a second, which is handled like a conventional. The Roth 401k, you have the ability, by filling out the proper forms and having an intelligent person help you with it, to get all of that money back and pay no interest and penalties on it whatsoever. The, then only the employer match, uh, uh, well, what you contributed on that side. If there's any interest earned or anything like that, you're going to pay taxes and penalties. But your, your basis is, is yours. You can take it out. You can get it back out. The employer side, you would pay the interest and penalties on. So if you only, if you lost 40%, Right, you'd only lose forty percent of the hundred percent. You made sixty percent, so that's an even bigger reason to go ahead and max out the thing if you can do a Roth, because you keep some free. Here's why I'm not big on, and again, if you're saving thirty percent of your income and ten is going into tax deferred stuff, fine, fine. But if it's not that kind of a ratio, if you're only saving 12% and 10's going to some kind of thing like this, I don't like it. And let me explain a couple reasons why. One, to make sure there's a good store of wealth that's extremely liquid, that's completely free of any regulation. Now let's talk about regulation-free wealth. It's almost regulation-free when you have it in a plain old plain Jane bank account. Because it can be liquidated and disappeared very, very quickly. But a trail of breadcrumbs are left behind. So that if you come into some type of legal trouble, Mr. Smith, where did the $50,000 that you withdrew last week go to? And you can say, I spent it, I paid off debts, I went to Atlantic City and gambled it. It's almost get out of jail free with your money if you get it out right before whatever kind of lockdown comes on you occurs. Whether that be governmental, tax base, whether it be somebody suing you, whether it be a divorce, you know, all the things that can happen to us, all right? Cash or precious metals are completely anonymous. They can be disappeared and moved and they can be held with no knowledge that they're being held. That's why some portion of them belong in your portfolio, even if you're not a big believer in gold and silver. Even if you're not a big believer in cash. It's the very fact that it's portable. Can be, you can hold a lot in a very small area. It can be easily secured and it can be transferred anonymously. If you don't have that built up, and all of your money is in a 401k, it's all subject to regulation. Even, here's what people are just, I know there's somebody screaming right now, but you can't, they can't take your 401k, it's protected, and even if you're in a lawsuit, they can't come get it, okay? You're in a lawsuit. You're being completely locked down, you can't use your assets, you've got a seizure on your, on your money, your business is in trouble, your income's at risk, everything's at risk, and you have so little. You have nothing. There's a big 401k sitting there. It's protected. They can't get it. Neither can you until your problems are over. You pull that money out of that vehicle, now it's subject to attack. Now it becomes an asset held outside of its protection. Now it becomes something that whatever caused your problem, they can continue to go after. You have to wait it out before you can access that money. 
If you wait it out and you survive, fine. If you don't, you could be completely bankrupt before you can even access that money. Then you got to pull more of it. You got to pay more penalties. It just makes sense to not put all your eggs in one basket, no matter what the basket looks like. But again, if this guy's able to save 30% or more of his pay, and 10%'s going in there, fine. If he's saving 12, I'm not maxing the 10. I'm sorry. It's too much at risk in too many ways, and it's too held hostage, and it's got too many rules with it, and it's got too many things that entangle it to have to get it out quickly. You know, it's got so much potential to be screwed with by somebody else. 401k money, IRA money is some of the most heavily regulated money in the world. Whenever there's regulation, there's complication and there's potential for problem. Even though most of the time there is no problem. You know, most of the time, most of the time, you can go to the store and buy a can of beans. We still store beans, if that makes sense. So I don't disagree with you, coming from your viewpoint. I do say there's a lot of other things we have to consider before we just say, yeah, that's what we should do. Great call, very good call, made me think. I'm sure you made some other people think. Thank you for that. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My name is Chris, calling from Tennessee. First of all, thanks for everything you do with your podcast, your website. It's awesome. Just wanted to share a story with you. I'm, I'm 39 years old, two young kids, and a, a month ago I had to have my gallbladder taken out after an emergency attack of pancreatitis. And it got me to thinking that, uh, you know, an emergent situation like that is not really on everyone's agenda as far as bugging out, especially for a long period of time. You can have a year's supply of food and water and lots of shelter, but if you're 200 miles away from a, the nearest emergency room, uh, you're going to be out of luck if you have a sudden attack and really need to get somewhere quickly. So I was wondering uh, what you have in your plans for emergent situations as far as uh, getting to a hospital quickly and things like that. Thanks again. I appreciate your comments, Jack. It's a great question. And it's a part of why we're not into, with our particular uh, bug allocation, living in the middle of the mountains 200 miles away from anywhere. Um, our bug allocation is a rural area outside of a relatively small city called Hot Springs, Arkansas. Um, we're, we're, we're way back in the middle of nowhere, yet we have relatively quick access to town. I can't be much more specific than I'm going to be right now because I don't want to give away where the hell the place exactly is, obviously, for many reasons. Um, but there's a place near there that we're actually far closer to than Hot Springs proper, which is called Hot Springs Village. It's a retirement community. It's full of old people. It's gated. It's very well kept. It's very well secured. It's one of the nicest places in America, as far as I'm concerned, that a person could retire to. I have no desire to live there. Uh, I don't have no desire to ride around on golf carts and play golf and things like that uh, and sit around and grow old gracefully. I want to fight it every step of the way and spend my time in the mountains uh, eating squirrels and growing food. Um, but... The nice thing about having a place like that is that there's all kinds of great, grade-A medical facilities centrally located right around that little Hot Springs Village area designed to treat anything that can go wrong with an old person, which is everything that can go wrong with a human being. So we have access to some of the best medical care in the country, 
that would take us about 20 minutes to access if we had to drive ourselves there. You know, we probably would. I'd probably throw my wife. If it was her, I'd throw her in the car. If it was me, I'd say throw me in the truck. Because uh, waiting for an ambulance to get to us could be a real problem. That's something we do have to think about. We do have to pay attention to our health. If we start to have a problem, we need to get it checked out. Uh, we need to make sure that we're not, you know, on the verge of having a heart attack tomorrow or something like that where 20 minutes is too long. Uh, but there is medical care available for us. I am not opposed to living out in the middle of nowhere, but if you have an aneurysm or something and you're in the middle of the mountains in Idaho, you're probably dead. But that's the trade-off. And that's just something people have to look at. I mean, even something that's relatively easy to fix, a ruptured appendix, especially if you're alone. You know, if you're alone in the wilderness and your appendix ruptures, man, you got problems. But every time we go into a place where we're far away and alone, we're going to have those problems. So I do think it's something for the people that have a bug out location 200 miles from nowhere. They need to think about this. What would you do in this environment? What I'm going to do is I'm going to go get help. Now, that isn't the case if we're in the middle of a disease pandemic. We're in the middle of a disease pandemic. Everything's overloaded. People are dropping like flies, especially all those old people up in Hot Springs Village. It's really hitting them hard. They all live so close together. They're falling over. Last place you want to go when you're sick, you could end up in a situation where you have a severe problem, you're unable to get help, help, and you die. But that could happen. You sit in the middle of Dallas, Texas, or Atlanta, Georgia, or Los Angeles, California. Here's what I want you to understand about prepping. We do everything we can to mitigate the circumstances, and sometimes we will still lose on an individual basis. We will survive as a people. Hopefully we will survive as a culture. We will survive as families, and we will survive as a nation. But we will not always survive as individuals. People will drop off all the time. You will be driving to work one day, and a giant 10-wheeler will hit you and kill you. That's why you should have life insurance. So you leave something behind when that happens. That can happen to any of us any day. Today, when I get done with this show, I'm going to make some biltong on video for you guys, like I've been promising, that we're going to use the dehydrator for. And I'm going to drive up to the store and uh, pick up some stuff for dinner tonight, just some new things I want to try. I've got some ideas from Chef Keith Snow that was on the show. And uh, I'm going to drive a mile and a half to get to Tom Thumb. And I'm going to drive a mile and a half to get home. And there's a million to one shot that on that trip something could happen to me. And if it does, it does. We can't prevent everything. But we can damn sure solidify our lives. And while we're here, give ourselves the best life possible. Good question, good thought. And you guys with those really remote situations, ask yourself what you're going to do when somebody has an appendix that ruptures or a pancreas that ruptures or something like that. And the answer may be, if it happens, it happens. That's the risk we're willing to take. Because we all take risks every day. And that's okay. Just make sure you've asked the question. Let's take another question from the audience. These are great ones today, guys. Hey, Jack. I need your help on another uh, issue. Something about 1099 forms that have to be sent out for any purchases over $600, which is tied into the Obama health care plan. Apparently they hope to use this Big Brother approach to track down um, all businesses that aren't declaring everything which in theory people should declare what they're supposed to declare. Um, but I just heard this last night on a talk radio show. I'd like to get your, your take on the whole thing. Thanks again for all you do. Bye-bye. Okay, good question. This is another one of these topics, and that's Joe there. 
Joe always asks great questions, always looks for sanity and rationale and all these hype things, and good for you, Joe, and thanks for bringing it up again. We've talked about it before, but I think some new things have evolved in the hype side of this, and uh, we need to understand this so we don't overreact it. First, before I say anything else, I want you to know this is part of the health care bill. That part is true. It is designed to put more money into the coffers of government. That part is true. And I think that it's reprehensible that they've snaked a way to get more taxes and more reporting and more paperwork out of the American people into a health care bill in something that has nothing to do with health care. And it's a crapshoot because what they're saying is we can pay for this because we believe there's this much money out there being hidden from us. And if we can uncover it and tax it under existing, it's not a new tax. There is no new tax on this, right? This is basically saying we want to make sure all income is reported so we can tax it under existing tax rates and tax laws. doesn't change the tax rate. doesn't change the tax law. This is disgusting. And this is part of the health care reform bill that we have a good shot of repealing one piece of uh, with a new legislature that wants to make it look like they're doing something to help us. So there's hope. The other side of it, though, what this actually is, is a disclosure of income with 1099. The first thing we need to understand about a 1099 is who sends a 1099. The person receiving the money, not spending it, sends a 1099. You don't have to do jackedly crap unless you're in business with a 1099, except if you get one, report it as income and charge any expenses off against it you can. All right. The big part of this bill does things like this. I receive money when you guys pay me through PayPal to PayPal. Right now it's up to me to report to the government what you guys said and what I owe. All right. There's no 1099 from PayPal. In the future, PayPal will send me a 1099 and say, last year you received you know, $50,000, and they'll send a copy to the government, and the government will say, Mr. Spear, go account for your $50,000. Never been that way before, is that way now. I report everything anyway, because if they want to, they can get access to that information. But doing it with 300 million taxpayers is very difficult to figure out who to go after. You know, it's just, it's, so what they're wanting to do is make you account for all your earnings. Where it hits people with the $600 is, let's say I go down to the pawn shop and I take a bunch of my crap from around the house and I sell it to the pawn shop and uh, I find enough stuff that the pawn shop gives me $750. Right now, that pawn shop doesn't send me a 1099. I don't see, they, they report their financials. I report mine. We're both on our own. I can just write that off as a loss. I cannot mention it at all. It, it's cash. It's hidden. But... In the future, that pawn shop will have to send me a 1099 said, you, you received $750 from us. This is how it gets to the small business, other than merchant accounts and things like PayPal. And this is how it gets to the individual. You go down to the coin shop, and you, you know, sell the guy $550, $650 worth of coins. 1099s you. You received money. I believe in the coin business, it may get done if you buy it. But I don't really understand how that would work. I, I can't see how that would work because the person sending the 1099, the person generating the 1099 is always the one who who uh, who, who pays the, the, the funds out. So this is anytime you would sell something or take money in, you'd have a 1099 uh, generated if it was done through a third party. If you take money in directly, you're still on your... So if you have a cash business... There's no 1099. You report your receipts. Okay? So that's how this actually works. This is what it actually does. 
So if you think you're going to go down to Home Depot, right, and buy a $900 refrigerator, and that's going to generate a $1099, it ain't happening. That's not what it is. And I'm hearing crap like that out there. Let's keep a lid on this. Let's know what it is. Let's oppose it for the right reasons. Here's the reasons to oppose it when you call your Congress clown or your senator. This should be opposed because it puts undue burdens on small businesses, adds extreme expense, adds mountains of paperwork, and will cause so much bureaucracy within our government to oversee it that anything that the government gains out of it will probably be spent back. So all it's going to do is to get their extra $30, $60 million, whatever they end up getting, they're going to spend an equal amount. They're going to play a money shell game with this. All it's going to create is a bigger bureaucracy, suppress small business, and put more oppression into our society. That's it. That's why you oppose it. Not because, oh, they're going to tax me when I buy a refrigerator. No. Don't, you know, it, they're going to raise my taxes. This is, you know, it's not that. I've just given you what it is. If anybody knows it to be more than what I explained, please clarify in the show notes. I'll do an update on it. This is not something I've really become an expert in because I understand enough about it to know how it affects me. I don't like it, but it is what it is. And I report my earnings anyway because as public as I am, and as public as I am as being any governor, I'm sure somebody's watching, so um, it doesn't really affect me that way. But I will tell you this, it's going to affect a lot of people who have been sheltering a lot of money. And depending on what side of that fence you're on, it's either a good or a bad thing. For a lot of people, they think, oh, that's great. You know, they should pay their fair share too. My view is, if you can avoid paying taxes smartly, avoid it. I see this theft in the first place. Let's go ahead and take, uh, take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Archer from the forum. Thanks for your hard work. Just want to let everybody know about the type of home or building you can build called a monolithic dome. It's a concrete dome made out of concrete and rebar, and it's very uh, secure and safe. It's very resistant to tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, and fires. It has an excellent RH value, or at least, sorry, an insulation value or heat and cold, uh, they can be built above ground, partially in the ground, or completely below ground. My brother recently built one, a smaller one, out in the San Diego desert, and that thing works great. If you want to check it out, check out monolithic.com. Once again, monolithic.com, and it's a monolithic concrete dome. Talk to you later. Thanks for your work, Jack. Bye-bye. Great call, and I think it's something that a lot of people should look at. One of the things you're going to have to accept right away with a monolithic dome, though, is you're probably not going to be able to build one in a subdivision. You ain't going to get it anywhere near an HOA. It's going to be something you're going to have to move kind of out into the outskirts or way out there uh, to be able to build. It is something we've looked at. We've looked at a lot of different things for our future with our permanent housing. Right now, our bug-out location in Arkansas, we, we're, we're about... 50-50 on whether we're going to live there for the rest of our natural lives. We're not sure. We often look, you know, my wife, you know, is really attached to her family, especially her father, but he's getting up there in years. We don't know how much longer he's going to be with us. And I think once he passes away, and I, I hate to put it that way, but it, it is that, it's the way that it is, she'll be more comfortable with moving further away from here. And we often look at pictures of the snow, and we remember what, like, Pennsylvania was like and all, and she's so attached to that. She loves that so much, and I do too, and I love the more temperate climates. And we look at land and what's available in West Virginia, and that seems like kind of a really nice place to live as well. Uh, or even up into New England. Maybe I'll come join you guys with the Free State Project in New Hampshire someday or something. And if we move, or even if we don't move, the place we have now has a mobile home on it. It's a really nice one, but it is a mobile home, and it comes with all its limitations. So at some point, 
when everything, uh, as far as the property's paid off up there, which, again, we estimate to do that in less than two years once we move, uh, and that'll be the last bit of debt that we have anywhere in the world, uh, and we're able to save up money and resources even more than we have before, and we're, we're really fine-tuning our homestead operation up there. We've thought about, do we build something there, or do we eventually sell it off and move and, and, and build something somewhere else? And we've looked at a couple options. Cabins have been something we've looked at. Uh, Earth-sheltered homes and monolithic domes are all three that we've considered because of their inherent advantages. The biggest thing I don't like about the mobile home in Arkansas is not its energy efficiencies, because there's so much that we can, uh, or I would say not its, it is the energy efficiency. What I was trying to say is it's not its survivability like, let's say, in a storm, because we're so high up in the mountains up there, it's not like being out in the flats where tornado is a really big threat in, in that area. We have a very mitigated tornado threat. Uh, we're already working on a tornado shelter in case that happens. We have insurance in case it's damaged that way. Um, but the energy efficiencies are the big problem. If we were to move, and, and the position of the house itself is another. As I look at the way my land's laid out, I would like to move my house up the hill a little bit and turn the front of it south-facing. Right now, it basically is an east-facing front of the home. And, you know, building one of these monolithic domes up there really seems like a very cool way to do things. And I could actually build the backside of it into the slope and I could open up a lot of the foreground to agricultural things. So it's something I've considered. If we moved to, to West Virginia, if we bought land, we would probably you know build something, and it would be one of those three structures we would choose based on the property, the layout, the cost of expense and all. But I think they're damn near bulletproof. If you look at them, they're kind of built in the same shape as an ammunition bunker. Uh, they're going to survive just about any storm because of their shape and their structure alone. Um, when you have winds hit a house that's square, they hit a flat wall and they push. When you have winds hit a rounded wall with a rounded roof, they channel around it. So that gives survivability alone. Then it's built out of concrete. Uh, the R value, as Archer said, is huge. Check out the site that he recommended. And uh, if you've been looking for like a, a unique type of... Uh, of a new structure for building, uh, you know, kind of your retreat or your, you know, your dream home in, at least give them a consideration. They're pretty dadgone awesome, and construction is actually relatively easy to do. Uh, they definitely will last longer than you and I will. So let's uh, let's check into those guys and uh, let's uh, take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Andy in Savannah, and I was just listening to your Wild Edible podcast, and you were talking about ground nuts, and I was just wondering if if that is uh, Jerusalem artichoke. Um, it may be a stupid question, but I'm trying to grow some Jerusalem artichoke, and your description of ground nuts kind of sounded like it. But if it's something totally different, uh, just let me know. All right. Thanks for what you do. Bye-bye. That sure as hell ain't a stupid question. It's a good question, and just the answer is no. They're not the same thing. They're very, very different, and they have very, very different niches that they fill for you in your, uh, your agricultural activities um, in a couple different ways. Nutritionally, they're very, very similar. They're both great alternatives um, to uh, to high carbohydrate things like potatoes, especially for people uh, that are diabetic or predisposed to diabetes or dealing with type two diabetes or trying to fend off type two diabetes. Um, because they're high in inulin, they're low in carbohydrate, they're high in protein, and the same is true of both of them. Um, the research I've read on groundnut is it's better than Jerusalem artichoke and everything I just said. And it has some other medicinal properties. It's actually good to help with, aid with weight loss. Uh, it's good with appetite suppression. It, and, and, and here's the big difference nutritionally. 
groundnut is much higher in protein than Jerusalem artichoke. So it's a great protein source. In fact, there's more protein in groundnut than just about any other source of uh, protein other than meat. So huge on protein, something we should all look at planting around the area. The big difference is in them agriculturally. Jerusalem artichoke is like the easiest thing in the world to grow. If you're not careful, it becomes invasive and takes over everywhere. It's an annual crop, meaning that you can harvest it every single year from the first time you plant it till forever. One of the big ways to control Jerusalem artichoke for you guys out there so it does not become invasive, at least confine it to the area with the tubers where you're growing it, is when it's in beautiful bloom, before the flowers start to go to seed, cut all the flowers off. Put them in vases, bring them in the house, use them as ornamentals, compost them, do whatever you want to, but don't let them go to seed, and that will confine their their uh, reproduction to their tubers. It will also make bigger, fatter, juicier, more edible tubers because the, the plant will stop using energy to fuel seed growth and put all of its energy into tuber growth. But that's what a Jerusalem artichoke is. It looks like a great big tall, mini, a bunch of little mini sunflowers on it, um, and it's a tuber crop that you eat in substitute of a potato. In fact, there's a great article about them in this month's uh, Mother Earth News. So those that read that, check that out. Those that don't, you might want to check out Mother Earth News this month. Wonderful edition. One of the best ones I've ever seen. Um, a groundnut grows entirely different. A groundnut is more, the, the plant itself is a vine, uh, a lateral ground-covering vine that grows out across the ground. Uh, the nuts look like nuts, or mini potatoes, so to speak. And the thing about a groundnut is it takes about two years before you get your first real harvestable crop. And then you'll want to harvest maybe 70% of what's available every year and leave 30% to propagate the next year. As groundnut grows, parts of the vine actually send out little feeler thingies that go into the ground, form new root systems, and create new tubers. Once established... It's a very it's a very repetitive, very dependable crop. Groundnut also has something really, really going for it. Once a tuber's formed, that tuber can sit in the ground for a long time. It'll get once it gets a certain size, it only gets a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, and it keeps sending out feeders and it keeps making new tubers. If you've harvested some this year and on an emergency you need more, you can go out there and dig it up out of the ground and eat it any time of year. It'll taste the same. It has the same nutritional value. Once the tuber is formed, it's available, and it can stay in the ground for years after it's formed. So it's a very good survival garden crop. It's a very good gorilla garden crop to plant out in the wilderness. It occupies a lower ground area, and it will do some climbing it is a climber, but it doesn't climb a lot. It doesn't climb the way like ivy does. Because once it's up a tree, all it's looking for is, is uh, solar radiation. That's all it's climbing for. Its reproductive activity is all subterranean. So groundnut and Jerusalem artichoke are both great crops, but they're actually different. Uh, they have different nutritional values while a similar nutritional profile. Groundnut much higher in protein, much more of a medicinal uh, and a much longer-term project once established. Artichokes, very, very, very simple to grow. You want Jerusalem artichokes, you don't even have to grow them in most of the United States. Right now, I could go out with a shovel and get a 1,000 pounds of them um, in vacant fields all over Dallas-Fort Worth as, as they're, you know, the, the flowers are, are drying back and the tubers are forming in the ground. They're everywhere. They grow wild like mad. They won't be as nice and big as a nice, well-prepared soil and cutting the flowers and making the, you know, all the stuff that we do to do them agriculturally, 
but there's plenty of them out there, certainly enough to go out and get your stock uh, for, for tubers and plant them in the ground and cultivate them without buying them. So check out uh, both of those things and make them part of your, uh, your, your homesteading. Let's go ahead and take another question. Yes, uh, this is Dustin and Diane. Um, we are making preparations for kind of the more extreme um, type situations of having to bug in. Uh, in doing so, we've um, you know acquired quite a bit of things for our two dogs. It's just the two of us and our two dogs. Um, so first, just any general tips that you might have for people in town that might have to bug in and have their dogs. But my real question is, after 10 days of a major event where people are having to bug in because the fertilizer has clashed with the ventilation system, um, what's going to happen to all the dogs around the neighborhood? You know, assuming that the owners have evacuated, um, you know, they're incapacitated or they have nothing to feed their dogs after that point. Um, just a little speculation of what you might think would happen. Um, and, you know, would they be running around in packs? And if so, if you kept your dogs inside the yard and or in, inside the house safe, you know, would it be a good idea to, you know, toss them some food over the fence every day or every other day if you could keep them around? Um, if you had the ability to do so. Just uh, wanted to hear your thoughts. Thanks very much. It's an interesting question and one I don't have all the answers for. I'll give you my best thoughts on it. First of all, kudos to you for being prepared uh, to take care of your animals. We are prepared for our, our dogs as well. They have plenty of food laid up. We have plenty of ways to, uh, to, to get more water so we can feed them and keep them watered. And, you know, we have their meds, uh, uh, you know, we get six months to a year worth of their meds at a time for anything they're on. They're not really on anything other than some preventative stuff. But, uh, you know, and we have additional, like, I give my, my older lab vitamin C. Uh, little side tip here for you folks. When you get dogs that are older and start having joint problems and they're sore, not real bad where they can't get up, but like where they go out and they run around a little bit and then they're kind of sore after that, if you give them vitamin C every day uh, in the morning, it has an amazing uh, ability to, to reduce their soreness and stiffness and arthritis and things like that. Uh, this is something I picked up for somebody who says, oh, it's dangerous, you're going to kill the dog. My dog's been eating vitamin C for years, buddy. Um, I picked this up in Field and Stream magazine about 25 years ago. We had this old Brittany Spaniel that was getting sore and uh, couldn't really hunt much anymore. The dog was, a, I mean, just a natural. He loved to hunt. The dog, this was one of these dogs that when you took a gun out of the cabinet at 7 o'clock at night to sit in front of the... Uh, uh, of the TV with, and, you know, maybe clean and do some maintenance on. He figured he was going hunting. He started barking and yelling and running through the house and freaking the hell out. If we went target shooting, we'd have to, like, lock him in a room so he didn't see the guns go out the door because he'd think he was getting left behind. Uh, that kind of dog. And you hate to see a dog like that reach the end of his, his hunting career. So we gave him vitamin C, and we probably extended his ability to hunt by about three years, and then he was just... You know, he'd hit a stick and fall over. He was that kind of old. And I, as a kid, I'd shoot blackbirds for him. So dogs are close to my heart, you know. At least he could run off the porch and go grab a blackbird. Uh, but with your dogs, make sure you're prepared like you are. Now, as far as what's going to happen to the other dogs, all we have to do is look at Hurricane Katrina. Uh, we had dogs running everywhere in the street, rapidly packing up, uh, doing what they could ever, ever they could do to salvage food, scavenge food, and things like that. Um, because there was so much refuse and waste, and because so many of the dogs honestly died, uh, there was only so many of them out there, and because of that, 
Um, they didn't get really into like the hunting pack dog mode. That takes a little bit longer, but it's surprising how quick dogs move into that mode. We think of our dogs as our cute little puppies that crawl up on our lap and lick our faces and they're so happy when we come home, and that's who they are. But like any creature, when you take away their systems of support, they adapt. And they revert very much, and I don't care if it's a little chihuahua, to the hunter-wolf-like state of what they really are. And they can be dangerous, but they generally tend not to be at first. They tend, if, especially if they're dogs that were cared for and loved, they, they still you know, associate humans with food for a while, but eventually that even fades out. So your idea of throwing some food over the fence to them and all, if it's humanitarian, fine. If, it's, if I'm going to keep dogs around, I'm going to be less bothered by people, fine. But understand, those dogs become a risk to you if you need to leave. They become a risk to you just like anything else, and then your humanitarianism may, may, may backfire, and you may have to shoot one of them, put them down, just to get to the car. So there are some concerns with that. Um, I will tell you that one of the best ways to make a dog go away, though, without harming them severe, seriously, is pepper spray. Uh, I've told the story before. I'll tell it again real quick. I had a neighbor's dog up in Arkansas. We were walking a different way than we normally walk. She's a pit bull. Uh, came out and just stood us down, man. She was going to bite. If we turn our back, I mean, you could tell this dog was going to go. Uh, I had a 9mm, and I had pepper spray. Try the pepper spray first. Pulled it out. I, I didn't even hit her with it. I, she had she was, like, down to the ground, face on the ground, in attack mode, just a few feet from us. And I, the only reason I think this dog didn't bite is I was so confident in standing her off because I had a gun, and I had spray on me, and my wife had spray on her. Um, and I knew that I could deal with the threat, and I had my wife behind me, and I pulled the spray out, and I hit one drop of it at the ground an inch in front of this dog's nose, and she went away. And if she hadn't gone away, she was fixing to get a face full of it, and if that didn't work, she was going to get about six holes. But I thought it was much easier to tell my neighbor, dude, I sprayed your dog in the face with pepper spray, then I shot your dog, and here it is, you know, so... um It's definitely something to keep around, too, to th when you think about dog threats, is a big, giant can. You know, we carry the little ones on our keychains, but for that type of scenario, a big, giant can of that, of like, um, what's the stuff that Cold Steel makes? Inferno. I, I've really become a big fan of Inferno. Check that out. Um, but I do think we'd have dogs running everywhere. I do think eventually the dogs become a threat. It depends on the duration of the disaster. And it uh, depends on how well people are able to care for their dogs during a disaster. But there is a time when people will throw the dog out of the house because they can't, afford, they can't take care of them anymore. If you doubt that people will discard their animals, go to a shelter. You know, It sounds like you guys are animal lovers and you've done all you can to take care of your animals. You may, if you have enough, want to take care of a couple more. Who knows? They're, they're, they're tremendous companions. But uh, Hopefully it's something we'll never find out what it would be like in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I know that's where you are based on your area code. Um, and I think you said so as well now that I'm thinking about your call. But there you go. Best I can do. I, I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen there. I can tell you that dogs revert to a pack state very, very quickly. And any place where you have feral dogs, you'll find them packing up and you'll have them acting like what they are, pack hunters. And they are generally not a huge threat to human beings, Uh, they do become a threat to your supplies, to your animals, to your livestock, to things like that. Uh, they're generally pretty easy to fend off, especially if you're in a place where they're, you know, they're shot uh, once they reach a certain level of problem. Uh, and I know, I mean, I'm a dog lover, guys, but I'm going to tell you, there are places where there are feral dog packs, and you're not, you're not re 
tuning these dogs back into uh, safe household companions. Because many times in these pack situations, it's not that the dog went feral, it's the dogs maybe feral for the third or fourth generation. They've been born into this. And it's like trying to domesticate a wolf that's not a wolf pup, but that is a wolf that grew up as a wolf. It's a danger. And I hate it, but there are dangers with some of these animals. Good question, good things to think about. Let's go ahead and take another one. Oh, hi, Jack. It's uh, Dean from Sydney, Australia. Um, love the show. My question's in relation to the uh, 22 long rifle versus the, um, the what is it, the uh, 17 HMR. Um, I've taken your advice and got my shooter's license and bought a shotgun to start, and I bought a Marlin 30-30 just for the fun of it, and now I'm uh, taking your advice on the 22. I've looked at a lot of YouTube stuff, and um, a lot of people saying that the 17 is, is much more superior. Um, I'm more around short ranges, a bit of a new shooter. And I um, just want to get your opinion before I go out and buy one. Obviously, in my case, I'd uh, like to keep the rounds cheap so I can take friends and um, just have a good old time at the range. And I love the show, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. First, thank you so much for doing me the honor of listening to me halfway around the world uh, that's so cool, and I love getting calls from international people, folks. Uh, I know that you can't do an 8-800 number, 866 number, what have you, toll-free number from, like, you know, Australia or England or something like that, but I do think you can pick up, you know, your Skype, and I think you can dial that as a phone, and I think you can call from anywhere in the world. So do consider calling in if you're international, and maybe I should set up, like, a Skype thing where you can leave voicemails, where I can also bring in voicemails from international people. If that would help, let me know in the show notes or whatever today. But uh, on to your question... Um, superior is a word that is always specific to the application, right? So superior, if, if we want the most accurate shooting round, inherent accurate round, 17, definitely superior. If we want the round with the greatest ability to reach out to longer distances, it's a 200-yard round. It, definitely 175, but really, in the hands of an experienced shooter on small varmint-sized game and things like that, it's 200 yards. 22 is 100. It's got double the distance. In most instances, with light winds, it's actually better at bucking the wind. As you get out to further distances, it becomes really subject to windage, but out to equal distances, 100 yards, you've got less windage effect on a 17 HMR than you do on a uh, 22 long rifle, just basically because you have a better ballistic coefficient um, and a higher velocity. So it takes less time to get there, less time for the wind to affect it. On lethality, it's it's definitely on the right size game, a far more lethal uh, route. So superior, in all those ways, it is superior. How is it not superior? Well, first of all, you said you're a new shooter, so you're shooting relatively short range, so advantage mitigated. Second thing you said, you want to do a lot of shooting with your, your, your friends, you want to keep it inexpensive, advantage, advantage destroyed. Because 22 long rifle ammunition costs, I think, about 15 to 20% or less what 17 HMR. I don't own a 17 HMR, so I've not been paying attention to their pricing, but there's a significant pricing delta. So in the two areas that would matter most, it seems like you're better off with a 22. Here's the one other area. This is why I've, I've kicked around buying a 17. I've picked every gun show I've gone to. I've picked up the Marlin bolt actions, and I've picked up um, a lot of different uh, 17s, and little savage cheap ones and stuff like that. I've kicked around getting a 17 HMR barrel for my sporter frame for my handy rifle and, and all these different things. And here's what it always comes down to. If I want to go out and shoot, and I want to shoot 200 yards, 
I've got this thing called a 22 Hornet. Beautiful little 22, 200 yards no problem. If I want to shoot further, I've got a 223. Right? I know you don't have that, but that's that's my view of it. But the bigger issue is, if I'm going to shoot a squirrel, and you know, 17 seems like a great squirrel gun, but if you hit a squirrel in in like in the body with a 17, you're talking ribs coming out the other side. Anything other than headshots, you've blown up half of your animal, and that's the one problem I see for the 17 is a hunting implement. It destroys too much on animals that are small enough to use it on, and when used on animals that are larger, it's too frangible and it doesn't have enough lethality. So you move up into something the size of a raccoon. I think you might shoot, you know, twenty raccoons, and eighteen of them will fall over dead on the spot if you hit them on behind the shoulder and treat it like shooting a deer. But two of them, you might hit a hard part of the rib or something, and you put a shallow wound and you cripple an animal, and no one wants to do that. Where a good .22, you know, it's a great round for a raccoon. It can step up because it has greater penetration ability, and it can step down without complete destruction. So for you, under your circumstances, I'm going to say .22, and for anybody that wants to use this as a weapon to harvest game that you're going to eat, I'm going to say .22. For someone that wants to have fun, extend their range, shoot as accurately as possible, maybe go out and terrorize prairie dogs or ground squirrels. And I'm not going to be using them for anything other than coyote bait. 17 all the way. There you go. Again, thank you so much for calling in from Australia. That is so freaking cool. And you guys have the coolest freaking accents, man. I love your accents. They're awesome. Uh, my 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 old business partner Neil gets mad because I say that your accents are cooler than the English ones, but uh, but I think they are because they're more rough and they they think you think more of a, of the type of person that we. Uh, That we generally think of on on the survival podcast, self sufficient, rough. That's you, Aussies, man. Thanks again for that call. Hope my advice works well for you, and congratulations on becoming a shooter in a country where it's not as easy as it is over here. And folks, don't take it for granted. You heard what he said. I got my shooting license. Don't let them do that to us. Let's take uh, one last call. We'll wrap up for the day. Hey, Jack. My name is James. I'm out in Indiana. Um, quick question. Well, a couple of questions for you, I guess. I've got. I just moved into a new property. And I'm, I'm trying to get food production going early. So I've, I've already planted a couple of, of fruit trees, uh, planted an asparagus bed. So I'm looking right and grapevines. I'm looking at the things that take a couple of years to get established and trying to get them going first off. Uh, but I'm having trouble dealing with one side of the house. I've got a north side of the house. It's on a, on a, a little bit of a slope. The only sun it gets, obviously, is from the north side. So about, you know, one o'clock on from the day. It'll get some sun. There's nothing blocking the sun on that side. It's just a cornfield. But I'm trying to figure out what I can grow over there, whether it's, uh, you know, fruit or vegetable or, or whatever. I've read in a few places that gooseberries and cranberries will do well in partial shade for certain varieties, but I'm having trouble confirming that. Um, just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. And then if you got a minute, if you got a second, uh, there's also a pond about 150 feet off my backyard. It's a little pond. It's, it's brand new. Um, I'm trying to figure out if there's a cheap and, and kind of covert way to stop that um, and, and just kind of get away with it without screwing up the ecosystem. Any any kind of resources you have in that light would be very helpful. Uh, thanks, Jack. Great shows uh, lately and, and as always, and I appreciate everything you do. Bye. All right, well, cool questions. Um, I can only help you so much with the shade. Let's let's start off with things that grow well in partial shade. Uh, gooseberry and cranberry are what are called understory plants, and that means they generally do well with partial shade, as you're saying. But partial shade 
and complete shade for a portion of the day are generally different. And let me explain what I mean by that. Partial, an understory plant is something that, you know, there's all these trees around and there's these openings and all, and there's like this one little opening and, and light gets down in there and, and, and it comes through throughout the day in different ways. And that plant is able to take what's available and use it and grow, uh, in that understory format. So when you have something like a house blocking, um, your, your, your shade completely, it's a little bit different. Also, the sun that you're getting in the afternoon isn't northern sun, it's, it's western sun. Uh, it just so happens that whatever is blocking uh, the eastern sun from getting to that side of the house doesn't exist on the western side. And the problem you're going to have with that is anything you plant there that can get by that maybe is edgy on, um, on winters is going to get even more shaded, and even if it's a thing that goes dormant, the ground is going to be much colder over there in the winter Uh, because that sun is going to get even less because the sun's going to move further and further south in the sky. So you're going to get even less of it probably back into that area. So you can try some of these things like uh, gooseberries. You can give it a shot. Uh, I just don't know how well they're going to do. Even if they survive, they're not going to thrive the way they would elsewhere. It may just be an area where you have to stick to things uh, that do well in the shade. Maybe it's a place where you put some tropical containers out there and stuff that you bring in in the winter. Um, that, that, that love the jungle, you know, filtered sunlight type environment, bouncing rays are enough. Maybe it's a good place to do um, a mushroom farm. I mean, that's I've got the exact same scenario. I've got a uh, a, a northern side of, of my place that it's not only a northern um, side of the house, it's also forest all behind and to the left and to the right of it. So it is shaded almost 100%. And I'm going to put a deck back there because it's a great place for a deck because it's shaded all the time. And off of that deck, I think I'm going to kind of clear out an area, and it's going to be kind of the area where I put in some outbuildings and things like that, put in a place for my RV. And then right off that deck, uh, that'll be part of the area that we're going to fence, and I may make that an area for uh, bringing in you know, hardwood logs and things like that. And uh, as I'm doing that, Plant mushrooms and you know mushroom spore into the logs, and it might be a, a good area for things like that. I don't see there there are certain areas that are just there's just too much shade, and 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 the one thing that will grow there for you uh, that you might be able to use for ornamental purposes and things like that is going to be English ivy. English ivy will do beautiful over there, but it's not going to produce much to eat. If anybody else has any ideas for that area. Please post them in the show notes today, and we'll discuss it going forward, because I'd like some ideas for this myself. Now, your pond. Um, big issue with the pond is you said it's small, but that doesn't mean anything to me. I have no idea whether small means it's 100 feet in diameter, it's a quarter of an acre. Um, I, I know it's not an acre of a pond. If it was an acre pond, I would think that you would have not called it small. So, uh, you know, how many gallons of water roughly is it holding and things like that? So what you would stock it with. But one of the easiest things to stock a small pond with and actually get a fairly good return of your investment on is going to be channel catfish. They'll grow well. Uh, they're not going to reproduce well in a small pond. They probably won't reproduce at all. But they take well to pelletized feed. You could set up a little automatic feeder out there to feed them. So channel cats. Um, you can go to any hatchery and you can buy channel cat fry so cheap. It's They're really not that expensive. It's probably... The best thing to do. If you want to stock from wild stock, then you can go out and find a place where you can catch it. And a lot of places have limits on channel catfish for size. Many places will require them to be at least a foot long. 
technically you're not supposed to do this, but how the hell do they know? You could go out and catch a limit of channel cats every day in the 12 to 14 foot range, 12 to 14 feet, 12 to 14 inch range. Bring them home, introduce them into your pond, uh, try to get them on a pellet feed. It's not going to be as easy as getting fingerlings, but they'll, they'll adapt. Uh, and they're very, they have a very high survival rate. Do you risk bringing in some sort of infection or pathogen? Yes, but you're already catching healthy fish. You're bringing them into a pond that's vacant right now. And the risk is minimal. Over the years, the more you build up, the more the risk becomes. But hey, you know, you could do that. Um, you could also possibly grow tilapia, um, it, depending on where you are in your pond, and you could grow them in a season. Uh, to eating size. And even though, and if you look, you know, here's the thing. Let's say you live in a place where by November the water temperature will climb below survivable rates for tilapia. Uh, that's great because all you do is the first day, you know, monitor your pond temperature. And when you know they're going to basically float from freezing to death, go out there with a net, scoop them all up, uh, clean them all up, and put them away. You know, and eat as many as you can once they're big enough to claim. And you can grow tilapia to full eating size in a single season in a pond easy. With a small pond, though, you're probably going to need some form of aeration, and you're going to need to use some form of control on algal growth, uh, because you can turn a small pond into a cesspool of green really quick. Tilapia would help you with that. So there's just some thoughts there. Um, but, again, a lot of people are going to say I'm wrong for ever suggesting that you would introduce food or fish from the wild into your pond. Um, I'm going to tell you that I just know too many places it's been done for me to really be concerned with it. All over where I was uh, fished as a kid in Pennsylvania, there were these what they called slush dams. They were these old places where they had dug out an area uh, with coal mining operations and an area where the pollution wasn't really bad for one reason or another. And they've back flooded in and now they're, they're, and there's, there's stripping holes, uh, that have this done in it. And none of them are great places for food fishing, uh, but a lot of them are definitely clean enough that fish survive in them and thrive and, and reproduce. And I know so many places where people would go out to the Susquehanna River, come home with a few smallmouth bass, uh, have them in a live well in a boat or something, and, and, and just go, you know what, I don't need to clean three fish tonight. Go by there and whip them in, whip channel catfish in, whip sunfish in, and things like that. And, you know, two or three years of a few people doing that, and all of a sudden there's a thriving ecosystem there. And this is this is like accelerating the way nature does it anyway. You have a body of water isolated long enough, sooner or later from birds and things like that, you're going to get eggs. And once the eggs get in there, then some of them hatch, and then you get some fry. and then it, So it can be done... In some places, it's technically illegal to do. But generally speaking, if it's a private pond and you own it, you can do what you want to with it. If you're taking fish under sporting regulations legally, you can do what you want to with them. You can't put them into another body of public water, but on your own private water, do what you want. If you want more specific recommendations, uh, give me a follow-up call. Tell me how old this pond is. You said it's new. I don't know what new means. Tell me how large this pond is. Tell me how deep this pond is. And I can give you some specific recommendations for small pond management. With that, this is Jim. Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.